Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com, and if you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Here's a recent one that we loved. The subject line is life-changing. It is not an overstatement to say that snoozecast has changed my life. I have never been able to find anything that helps me go back to sleep in the middle of the night until now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listener who wrote this review. We are so happy to help you fall back asleep easier. This episode is brought to you by Silent Grottos. Tonight, we'll read about hermit caves and rock temples from the subterranean world written by G. Hartwig and published in 1871. A hermit is a person who lives in seclusion. Eremitism plays a role in a variety of religions, although in modern colloquial usage, hermit denotes anyone living apart from the rest of society, for any reason. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. The dim twilight of a forest, its leafy vaults, its majestic silence, or its foliage moaning in the wind are all apt to strike the mind with a religious awe. 
but the solitude and stillness of caverns is equally well adapted to awaken feelings of devotion. And thus, we find that contemplative minds in every age and of every creed have found in them congenial retreats. Both in the heathen and the Christian world, grottoes, particularly such as had been hollowed by the lives of sainted anchorites, have frequently been consecrated to divine service and to render them still more worthy of their destination. The rude excavations of nature have not seldom been enlarged and beautified with all the resources of art. Among these subterranean places of worship, those of India are deservedly renowned for their colossal size and for the vast labor bestowed upon the sculptures with which they are adorned. A description of the famous rock temples of Canara near Bombay will give the reader some idea of their magnificence. The way leads over a narrow mountain path through a jungle so dense that the traveler is obliged to quit his palanquin and to ascend on foot the steep acclivity from which, at some distance from the summit, the large temple overlooks the country. This colossal work is hewn out of the solid rock, 90 feet long and 38 feet broad, with a corresponding height, and forms an oblong square with a vaulted roof. Two colossal rows of columns divide the hall into three naves or avenues and give it the form of an ancient basilica. As the Temple of Canara served the Portuguese for some time as a church during their occupation of the small archipelago of Bombay, the sculptures which decorated the interior have been mostly destroyed. This is the more to be regretted as the well-preserved and masterly executed capitals of the mighty columns justify the belief that their artistic merit must have been worthy of the grand dimensions of the hall. The beautiful portico, however, is still richly decorated. On each side, a recess contains a colossal, well-executed statue, and long inscriptions in unknown characters are carved on the square pillars of the entrance. The charms of a mysterious past thus add to the interest of this beautiful monument, the work of an astonishing patience and perseverance. The outer face of the portico, as well as the vestibule extending before it, 28 feet deep, have been considerably injured by the ravages of time. Many stones have started from their joints and a multitude of creeping plants cling to the moldering statues. Thus, 
The efforts of man to rear eternal monuments are vain. They must necessarily yield to the living powers of nature. Steps are hewn in the rock to the summit of the mountain, and various intricate paths lead to smaller excavations, consisting mostly of two cells and a portico. Near each of them is a well or basin, likewise hewn out of the rock, in which the rainwater collects, affording a grateful beverage to the tired wanderer. Many of these caves are larger and more perfect than the others, and some in their general effect resemble the great temple, although far inferior in size and decoration. The whole aspect of this perforated mountain shows that a complete cave town, capable of containing several thousand inhabitants, has been hollowed out in its flanks. The largest excavation was, beyond a doubt, the chief temple. The smaller caves, arranged according to the same plan, likewise served for devotional purposes, and the rest were dwellings more or less commodious and large according to the rank or means of their possessors, or, what is still more likely, the abode of pious Brahmins and their scholars at the time when India was the cradle of arts and sciences, while the nations of Europe were still plunged in barbarism. From the summit of this wonderful mountain, the spectator enjoys a beautiful prospect. The island of Salset lies before him as if spread out on a map, affording a most agreeable variety of rice fields and coconut groves, of villages and meadows, of woody hills and fruitful vales. The surrounding mountains form a foreground of gray rocks, dotted with trees, or excavated into dark grottos, once the abode of fakirs, but now the retreats of tigers, while towards the south the horizon is bounded by the island of Bombay, with its forest of masts, towards the east by the mainland, and towards the south by the ocean. The enjoyment of the picturesque scene is marred only by the many tigers which live in the mountains and frequently descend into the plain. Where the rock touches the sea, navigators had long remarked some pillars of stone rising from the water and covered with rude sculptures. From these, the spot received the name of the Seven Pagodas. Most of them have since been destroyed by the tides, and one only is still standing, though tottering to its fall. These, however, 
were but the advanced posts of the colossal excavations in the rocky wall behind. For here also are seen large grottoes, porticoes, and temples, though of somewhat smaller proportions and of less beautiful execution. They are dedicated to the worship of Vishnu and Shiva and covered with inscriptions. A whole rock town, or at least a vast sanctuary, thus lies concealed on this solitary coast. On the banks of the mysterious Nile, we find rock temples rivaling those of India in colossal grandeur, and among these, Ipsambul is preeminent in splendor. After sailing for some hours, says Warburton, through a country quite level on the eastern bank, we come upon a precipitous rocky mountain starting up so suddenly from the river's edge that its very summits are reflected in the water. We moored under a sand bank and accompanied by half a dozen of the crew with torches approached this isolated and stupendous rock. Yet even here, the daring genius of Ethiopian architecture ventured to enter into rivalry with nature's greatness and found her material in the very mountains that seemed to bid defiance to her efforts. On the face of the vertical cliff, a recess is excavated to the extent of about a hundred feet in width. From this, four gigantic figures stand out in very bold relief. Between the two central stony giants, a lofty doorway opens into a vast hall, supported by square pillars, each the size of a tower and covered with hieroglyphics. Just enough painting still glimmers faintly on these columns to show that they were formerly covered with it, and the walls are carved into historic figures in slight relief. These, as our torches threw an uncertain glare over them, seem to move and become instinct with life. This temple was dedicated to Athor, who is represented within under the form of the sacred bow. This was, however, a mere chapel of ease to the great temple, excavated from a loftier rock about fifty yards distant. Between these two, a deep gorge once ran to the river, but this is now choked up with sand, in whose burning waves we waded knee-deep to the temple of Osiris. Here, a space of about a hundred feet in height is hewn from the mountains, smooth 
except for the reliefs. Along the summit runs a frieze of little monkeys in long array, as if the architect felt the absurdity of the whole business. Or as Byron sometimes finishes off a sublime sentence with a scoff, then succeeds a line of hieroglyphics and some faintly carved figures, also in relief, and then four colossal giants that seem to guard the portal. They are seated on thrones which form, with themselves, part of the living rock and are about sixty feet high. One is quite perfect, admirably cut, and the proportions admirably preserved. The second is defaced as far as the knee. The third is buried in sand to the waist, and the fourth has only the face and neck visible above the desert's sandy avalanche. The doorway stands between the two central statues and is surmounted by the statue of Isis, wearing the moon as a turban. On entering, the traveler finds himself in a temple, which a few days' work might restore to the state in which it was left, just finished, three thousand years ago. The dry climate and its extreme solitude have preserved its most delicate details from injury, besides which it was hermetically sealed by the desert for thousands of years, until it was discovered and the protecting sands were cleared away. A vast and gloomy hall receives you in passing from the flaming sunshine into that shadowy portal. It is some time before the eye can ascertain its dimensions through the imposing gloom, but gradually there reveals itself. Around and above you, a vast aisle with pillars formed of eight colossal giants upon whom the light of heaven has never shone. These images of Osiris are backed by enormous pillars, behind which run two great galleries, and in these torchlight alone enabled us to peruse a series of sculptures in relief representing the triumphs of the ancient pharaohs. The painting, which one enhanced the effect of these spirited representations, is not dimmed, but crumbled away. Where it exists, the colors are as vivid as ever. This unequaled hall is one hundred feet in length, and from it eight lesser chambers, all sculptured, open to the right and left. Straight on is a low doorway, opening into a second hall of similar height, 
supported by four square pillars, and within all is the Aditum, wherein stands a simple altar of the living rock in front of four large figures seated on rocky thrones. This inner shrine is hewn at least 100 yards into the rock, and here, in the silent depth of that great mountain, these idols, with their mysterious altar, looked very imposing. They seemed to sit there, waiting for some great summons, which should awaken and reanimate these kings of the earth who lie in glory, every one in his own house. We wandered through many chambers in which the air is so calm and undisturbed that the very smell of the torches of the last explorers of these caverns was perceptible. In Abyssinia, the rock churches of Lalibala likewise give proof of an ancient state of civilization, strongly contrasting with the barbarism of the present times. Like the temples of Alora, some of these curious structures have been hollowed out of single blocks of stone left standing in the center of open courts excavated in the bosom of the rock, while others are completely subterranean, though far inferior in magnificence and extent to those wonderful edifices, they are yet very remarkable. The courts, in which the three principal monolithic churches are respectively dedicated to our Savior, to the Holy Virgin, and to St. Emmanuel, communicate with each other by narrow passages, the whole thus forming a continued series of excavations. The church of St. Emmanuel is 48 feet long, 32 feet broad, and 40 feet high, but it is surpassed in size by the Church of the Holy Virgin, where the rock walls of the court are moreover perforated with sepulchral vaults and with cells for the habitation of monks. The town of Lalibala is situated in a beautiful country, 7,000 feet above the level of the sea, on the slope of the mighty Asherton Mountain, and commands a prospect of alpine magnificence. Though it is now reduced to about 2,000 inhabitants, its eight rock churches, five monolithic, three subterranean, prove that it must once have been a place of considerable importance. Divine service is still performed in all these churches, which are the resort of numerous pilgrims, and to whose service above 500 priests, 
monks and nuns are attached. Though ancient Greece has no such huge rock temples to boast of as India or Egypt, yet caverns played an important part in her ancient religious history. Caves were the site of some of the most celebrated Grecian oracles. The tripod of the Delphinian stood over a subterranean hollow from which the divine inspiration was supposed to ascend, and pilgrims from all parts resorted to a cave in the neighborhood. A mythical personage who was supposed to have lived there for many years and was subsequently deified as an oracular god. Those who repaired to this cave for information were required after passing some preparatory days in a chapel dedicated to fortune and to the good genius to anoint themselves with oil, to bathe in a certain river, and to drink of the water of two neighboring springs, the first of which made them forgetful of the past, while the second fixed in their memory all they had heard and saw in the cavern. They were then clothed in a linen robe, took a honeyed cake in their hands, and after praying before an ancient statue, descended into the subterranean chamber by a narrow passage. Here it was that the future was unfolded to them either by visions or extraordinary sounds. The return from the cave was by the same passage, but the persons consulting were obliged to walk backwards. They generally came out astonished, melancholy, and dejected. The priests, on their return, placed them on an elevated seat, called the Seat of Remembrance, and the broken sentences they uttered in their confused state of mind were considered as the answer of the oracle. They were then conducted to the chapel of the good genius, where by degrees they recovered their usual composure and cheerfulness. There can be no doubt that the priests introduced themselves into the cave by secret passages and worked upon the excited imagination of their dupes by terrible sounds. During the palmy days of the oracle, the neighborhood of the cave of Trophonos was decorated with temples and statues. At present, its very site is uncertain. Like ancient paganism, Christianity not seldom celebrates her rites in caves hollowed by the memory of saints and anchorites. A stately church rises over the grotto of the nativity at Bethlehem, 
and a magnificent pile has been constructed at Jerusalem over the rock tomb in which our Savior was buried. The grotto on Mount Carmel to which the prophet Elijah retreated from the world is now dedicated to divine worship in the convent which bears his name and the cave in which John the Evangelist is said to have written the Apocalypse during his exile in the island of Patmos has also been converted into a chapel. One of the most celebrated rock churches is the Grotto of St. Rosala, the patroness of Palermo. This illustrious lady was niece to King William the Good and as the legends inform us, no less remarkable for her beauty than for her virtues, which made her the admiration of all Sicily. Never was a princess more fitted to adorn society, but the world had so few attractions for a spirit that could only breathe in the pure regions of piety that at the age of fifteen she retired to the solitary mountains and, from the date of her disappearance in 1159, was never more heard of for about five hundred years. The people thought she had been taken up to heaven as the fitting abode for her more than human perfections. But in the year 1624, a holy man had a vision that the saint's bones were lying in a cave near to the top of the Monte Pellegrino, and that if these were taken up with due reverence and carried in procession thrice round the walls of the city, they should immediately be delivered from the scourge. The bones were accordingly sought and found, thrice carried around the town, as the vision had described, and the plague suddenly ceased. From that time, Saint Rosalia was revered as the patron saint of Palermo, and the remote cave where she probably spent many years of her solitary life became one of the most renowned sanctuaries of the Catholic Church and the resort of innumerable pilgrims. The mountain is extremely high and so steep that before the discovery of St. Rosalia it was looked upon as almost inaccessible. But a fine road very properly termed La Scala, or the stair, have been cut out in the rock and leads from terrace to terrace over almost perpendicular precipices to the entrance of the Holy Grotto, which is situated near the very top of the mountain and commands a magnificent prospect. Within two miles of the foot of the mountain, 
the eye discerns the city of Palermo with its beautiful villas and luxuriant gardens. And then, taking a wider range, glances to the north over the dark blue sea, bounded by the Lapari Islands and the ever-fuming cone of Stromboli, while to the east, a large portion of Etna, although at the distance of almost the whole length of Sicily, towers like a giant above the minor mountain chains. A church and other buildings forming a kind of courtyard where some priests reside, appointed to watch over the treasures of the place and to receive the offerings of pilgrims that visit them have been erected round the grotto.